Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Hickmania number two. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. Today you are listening to a conversation about Jonathan Hickman's second comic book that came out as creator-owned works as we work our way through all of the Jonathan Hickman creator-owned comics throughout this year in 2022. We're going to be talking about Pax Romana. This is the follow-up to Hickman's debut, The Nightly News, which was released via Image Comics. Pax Romana is, again, much like The Nightly News, basically Hickman doing everything himself. Writing, drawing, coloring, lettering, editing, the whole bit, right? Or not editing, right, is my, my go-to joke on that bit. But this is Pax Romana. I'm joined today by two exciting guests that I'm really, really happy to have here to talk all things about this comic. Uh, we have Chris Edelman from Comics XF. Uh, he's a podcaster, uh, and he's joined by Robert Segundis. And the reason I, sh I announce you both together is the way I was introduced to your work was both of you co-writing uh, the best House of X and Powers of Ten analysis out there um, back when, when Hickman was launching that series. So Chris, Rob, thanks for joining. How are you both doing today? I'm doing good, Dave. Thanks for having us. Wow, that's a that's quite an intro. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I'm I'm doing great, and thank you for the the kind words about Hawksbox talks, which were uh, it was an undertaking. It was an undertaking. We'll say that much. Yeah, no, and it's it's that level of like super in depth analysis that you both brought to it. That is, you know, it's definitely something that I've been working towards doing more of, and definitely something that you know is kind of the aim of of what we're doing here on Hickmania, right? Which is going through the creator-owned career of Jonathan Hickman, and and really getting in deep. So for those of you listening, if you're familiar with Hickman's books, if you're doing the Reading Club along with us, great. We are going to talk about Pax Romana in detail, right? And we're also going to talk about a little bit about how it connects to some of the other works. Um, if you're worried about spoilers, that sort of thing, I definitely highly recommend you go read the work first, then come on back and, and check out the, the conversation here because we may spoil things as we move forward, okay? Um, it's not going to be malicious or intentional, but we're talking about the work in full, and that's just how it's going to play. So, all right, so here's the context for Pax Romana. This releases basically throughout 2008, okay? The Nightly News came out late 2006 through 2007, so this is basically launching like a half year after the debut of Hickman finishes publishing. And Hickman, for those of you you know who are most familiar with Jonathan Hickman through his Marvel writing uh, work in, in comics, um, that starts picking up technically in 2007. He does a short story. Um, it's a Living Mummy short story in a Legion of Monsters Satana special. Very, very not well-known piece. Uh, but it's really in 2009, right, when Secret Warriors and Fantastic Four runs kick off in earnest. So we're still in pretty much the firmly creator-owned DIY Hickman territory with Pox, uh, which I think is interesting. This book continues the exploration of, of philosophical constructs, right, in a, in a story about wars across time. It's a time travel, um, religious war kind of book. Here's from Hickman, a quote from the time. Pax Romana takes place in a future where Islam has overrun Western Europe and monotheism is on the wane in the East and the West. There's a breakthrough. They discover time travel, they being the Catholic Church, in a scientific lab that's secretly funded by the Vatican. The Pope sends a private army back in time to conquer the world and maintain the dominance of Catholicism. Let's start here broadly. <laughs> what do you think of Pax Romana? Rob, let's start with you. What do you think of Pax Romana? How does it hold up as a work? Um, what's kind of your experience with it? What are your big picture thoughts? It's, it's interesting because I think um, it, it's not the worst of the like what I think of as the Hickman juvenilia, even though he was not a young man when he, he, he did this early comic stuff. It's, it's not the worst. It's not the Nadir, um, but it, it has a lot of the problems that plague him throughout his early career. 
be it the limitations in his own artistic abilities, um, be it the kind of angry young man raging against the world who has read some books, but maybe not quite enough to have a uh, very thoroughly developed opinion about things. But there's a lot of promise too. Like if you if you look at the very first page with the the Roman soldiers and the circle inset, that clearly I think you can see the limitations of Hickman as an artist, and you can see his stylistic and structural weaknesses as dialogue is everywhere and info dumping. But it's so striking, it's so uniquely evocative, and the ideas here are so massive that it could have been like a 75 issue series. Right. So I I think it's a very mixed bag. I think it's worth a read if you're interested in the man as a creator, maybe not if you're just looking for a good read, but uh, for people interested in doing these kinds of like deep dives into people, it is a fascinating window into the guy. Chris, what's your, what's your perspective? Where are you coming at from, uh, from Pax Romana? Do you agree? Do you come at it a little differently? What do you think? No, in, in general, I agree. I actually um, had not read it until right before we did Hawkspox Talks. Uh, Rob and I went through a lot of his early creator-owned stuff to see kind of what would maybe come back. Um, I think right before yeah. right before Hawkspox came out, Humble Bundle had that big all of Hickman's creator-owned thing. It was really convenient uh, at that time. Um, I like I was not a nightly yeah. news guy. I kind of came into him at, with Secret Warriors um, since I was I was kind of strictly a Marvel guy at the time. Sure. I was really struck by the fact, like like that Rob said that it, it is it is very different in that it is almost more like a picture book than a comic book. Hmm. To say like those things are not necessarily the, you know they, are those the same thing probably you know is is the monster at the end of this. Book I, I've tried reading it to my kids nightly and I, I've had horrible, horrible success with that. <laughs> they, that they will fair. not stand for that. <laughs> they will not stand. Yeah. Um, it, it kind of immediately reminded me of a lot of people that I knew in my early twenties, kind of how they thought about mm. the world in that it was very like, I, I I'm from kind of small town, Midwest, very Bible belty. And so there was a lot of sort of, counterculture backlash to that in like in young men and specifically of like this you know if the if if things hadn't gone the way they had in the roman empire hadn't been so so christianized we would be in such a different different place right now and it it Mm. it was interesting reading this right after nightly news because nightly news is like kind of uncomfortable right like especially these days and that it is very much like (laughs) Hickman kind of at like a, a bit of like a libertarian bent in terms of like, like the, you know, the media is corrupt, which is, which is true, but the whole, like the media is corrupt. They should all die sort of deal. And I'm not to say he was advocating yeah, right, that, right. but the main character was kind of, kind of supposed to be, you're kind of supposed to rally behind him a little bit. Pax Romana is a bit different in that it is not like, it doesn't make me uncomfortable. Um, I, th- I find it kind of, kind of a fascinating idea, even if it, it is, an idea that's not completely original. You know, you have things like Guns of the South, which is a, a novel where yeah. some white supremacists go back in time, give advanced weaponry to the Confederacy. The Confederacy ends up in a much better position during the Civil War. There's even a book that is somewhat like this. I, I The name's escaping me right now, but like going back in time, giving the Roman Empire a leg up. 
Less Darkness Falls. Yes, Less Darkness Falls. This definitely has has some shade. Which I only know because of you, Chris. You recommended it. (laughs) That's right, and I forgot (laughs) the name. But it's it's interesting in that we have these these bits that are very comic-y, and then you'll have these bits that absolutely grind to a halt where he just decides to do a script instead. Yeah. The that sort of structure, I there's a, there's an introduction at the beginning of the trade of this by by a woman named Blair Butler who is like she was a real comic book person and in 2008 she was like the comic book person at G4 which was still kind of like an extant network at that point and she talks yeah. about you know how how very different this is and it is that you know at, at 2008 I'm trying to think of the image comics that were the most popular but they were they were even though they were like doing their creator and Walking Dead right it was it was like the, the Kirkman, Kirkman show wasn't big. it and Kirk, Kirkman plays it pretty, you know, even though he has like pretty neat, like crowd appealing ideas, his comics are pretty like par for the course, pretty safe in terms of like, and maybe not storyline wise, but they, they don't really do anything new with the media other than just having a long continuous story mm-hmm. that, you know, is going to end at some point, uh, which, you know, is wild compared to superhero comics, but it's, it's pretty, the layouts are pretty normal. Invincible, I'd say is even like a, you know, pretty par for the course superhero comic if somewhat violent i don't know in 08 like all comics were incredibly violent but um you know pax romano was was pretty different even if i don't always love those differences it was at least kind of trying to do something yeah yeah no these these are interesting points you all bring up and i I think there's a lot there that i'm i'm gonna want to come back to um a few pieces right the the use of the genre of alternate histories, you know, Chris, you, you literally introduced me to Harry Turtledove and Guns of the South. Like these are, these are like, and, and this is one big thing that I'm maybe the most invested in as I kind of go back and, and explore Hickman as a comics creator is getting more of a feel for non-comics influences and inspirations. It seems like maybe an obvious thing to non-comics readers, but I, as a reader, have been so personally immersed in comics as, as reference points that for me, it's like, okay, but what... What else is out there that we're drawing from that give the the sense of these big ideas and these sort of unexplored things? Because I think you're right. Like if you're reading Pax Romana in the context of Images 2008, it feels perhaps unlike anything in the world. Um, but then you sort of start to put other reference points like Guns of the South, like Less Darkness Falls, um, you know, like um, like the philosophy of Hegel, which Hickman is is very eager to share that he's been reading, even though it is almost unreadable, <laughs> in my view. I, I definitely needed philosophize this the podcast to uh, to work through some of that. But like, there's all these other reference points. So that's that's something I'm going to want to share here in the show notes. I'm going to want to talk about them, and I'm also going to want to talk about the formalistic things here in Pachamon too, because I I do think those are genuinely very, very interesting in terms of, we see this in the nightly news with infographics and such. We see it in Pax Romana here continuing as well, where Hickman is sharing big, meaty, weighty ideas and the ways that he does that sometimes here, literal scripts, right? Literal, like you're reading a play dialogue, um, trying to convey large ideas. So backing it up from all that, cause I'm gonna wanna dig in. in. I think it's an improvement over nightly news. Um, I think Pax Romana is a, it is a nice step forward. It is more of, the sci-fi writer that I think of when I think of Hickman in a lot of ways. Um, whereas Nightly News is, is, I labeled it in the last conversation that we had, you know, kind of his angry punk rock album where it's like, he's just mad and he's not going to take it anymore. Pax Romana is not that it is, you know, pretty heavy science fiction. Um, it's, it's time travel. It is, it is bringing in alternate histories. Um, it's, it's historical science fiction as well. Um, and it's philosophical science fiction, right? Which is a nice, there's a nice layering 
of different perspectives and ways you can approach the work that I, I don't know that it always hits, but it's, it's, I like that in a work. I like that in a comic where there's at least the possibility of dissecting it or even just dissecting what doesn't work. You know, I do find in retrospect, like in this era of Rob, you described it as the Hickman juvenilia, right? He's, he's finding his footing. He's, he's creator own works, nightly news, transhuman, which comes next, which we're not going to get into, but that's, that's the next one we're going to talk about. There's such weird anomalies, right? There, there's clearly this creator kind of just exploring, like what kind of stories can I tell? And I think what we're going to find as we do this reading club and what I'm finding as I read through these, because some of these I had literally never read. I had never read Transhuman. I had never read The Red Wing, these early Hickman works. Pax Romana is, it come, becomes, I think, in a lot of ways like, oh, this is this is what he's going to do, right? This is kind of what he's capable of um, and what he's interested in is kicking the sci-fi into overdrive and and getting these big philosophical ideas out in, you know, ultimately like kind of a kind of a historical action work. So there's a lot here. There's there's a, a lot here we can talk about. I think what I want to talk about first is what are, in terms of the framing of this comic, so the, the plot here, as we've stated, is the Vatican discovers time travel. And I, sh I should say, time travel is, this is a time travel book, but it is not the focus, right? Time travel just works. And they, they literally resolve that in like a single page. And like you have the scientists that are just like, yeah, we resolve paradox. Like that's it. Like we don't need to talk about it any further. There's no, there's not even like the Avengers Endgame style. Like, oh, it, like it works like back to the future or this. Like it's just like, just take it. Just take it and, and accept that it works. From that perspective, the Vatican sends their troops. They send these mercenaries who are loyal to or loyal to um, the bishops that they're sending back to reshape the world. And they do this because... They're in a future, they're in 2053 AD, where Islam specifically is like the dominant religion. So it's kind of like Catholicism has has lost weight. Um, they have lost credibility in, in, in ownership of minds, right? Um, Rob, how do you feel about the specifics of the Catholicism versus Islam portion of the story? And also just like where Hickman kind of decides to play in historical space does that work for you do you feel like there's there were better options kind of what was your read on that the the way that catholicism in isolation is handled has ups and downs throughout the series um in, in the first issue i think there's um a reference to papal infallibility which is just like bonkers infallibility is referenced as the pope being unable to sin when infallibility in Catholicism is like this wider concept that church councils, all bishops, and sometimes the Bishop of Rome can state a doctrine definitively. So sometimes with certain measures, the Pope, all bishops or church councils all have access to this. And the idea of like the Pope not being able to sin because of infallibility is just like a weird mistake to make. It's the kind of thing that lots of people who don't know much about the religion, including many Catholics, uh, would assume was the case is wrong. But in, the, in other areas, um, it seems like he did do plenty of, of research. You mentioned Catholicism and Islam, and I think that interaction is really maybe the most major weakness of the series, I think, mm. historically and philosophically. Because Islam's place in history at the end of Rome and in the so-called Dark Ages and in the Middle Ages is very underexplored by most people who buy into this very Edward Gibbon notion of, oh, the Roman Empire got a little too religious-y and then fell apart. 
um, when the truth is that Islam created uh, a massive cultural growth, a flourishing in arts and sciences and mathematics and cla- and, and the classics, Islam, um, Islamic civilization held onto and preserved so many European texts. And then here's the other, here's the important part. Islam then had a cultural exchange with Christian Europe in which not only those classical texts, but also Islamic texts were hugely influential in the intellectual development of Europe itself. The brightest minds of the Middle Ages, and there were many bright minds that laid the foundation for the scientific revolution, that laid the foundation for the later philosophies that arose out of Thomism, out of scholasticism, they're very much influenced by Islam. And so I think there is this weird combination where you have the Edward Gibbon notion of the Roman Empire, which is pretty much universally held by people who know a little bit about history, but haven't like dived deep into it. And then you have and, like, and we should say, we should say here, sorry, Rick, off, yeah. just that Gibbons is the, the author of the rise and fall of the Roman empire, which is a, a go-to historical text for people discussing Rome and, and Hickman references it in interviews leading up to this as well, that it's a touch point for him. Yeah. And it, it's a, it's, it's a work worth reading because it's very beautifully written. It's just historically very inaccurate and very limited in its perception. But then the other major influence I think is, uh, well, the climate that Hickman is writing in, in the aughts, in the war on terror, in this massive cultural um, framework that views Islam and the West as opposed forces when really they're, there's no such thing as the West, first of all, and there's no such thing as Islam writ large, second of all, but also these two religions and all these cultures have been intermingled throughout their history and have led to intellectual flourishings with each other. So yeah, I think that that was a very long uh, ramble, but basically there's a lot of limitations in the way that Hickman handles religion and the interactions and religions in this book. I I think it's a really important conversation because that was definitely like my first read. That was one of the things that stuck in my craw probably the most um, was like, you know, we have this book that is basically just like it kicks off and it's like, hey, we're just going to wipe out Islam. And it's kind of like, wait, are, are we all just moving past that? Like that that's an, that that's kind of the premise. And I, one thing that I think I've kind of found is I've reread and I've kind of explored, like, what are we actually doing here is Hickman does not actually engage much almost at all with the religious aspects of the story. Right. Especially insofar as like Catholicism versus Islam, like he's not. I don't think like actually like picking a side as it were, it's more just the perspective is, is what you just described, Rob. It's that of the very, um, you know, Greco Roman centric and then, and then Catholic centric view of the world. Right. And, and of the dark ages as completely falling apart, um, without anything else progressive happening in the world, which is like, when you look historically, it's like, well, no, where do mathematics come from? Right. Like there's certain things that, that are important at the end of the first issue. In the, in the back of notes, if you actually have a print copy of this, Hickman writes, Pax Romana is not about religion. It's about sociology. Read accordingly. That There's a viewing of the book where you can read it and say, oh, and when I know that's what he's doing, that is true. My, I guess my question is, does that reading work? Chris, let's throw it to you. Like, do you think Pax Romana actually functions or does it, just by introducing this Catholicism versus Islam thing, does it kind of have to address that too? I think one of the the big problems, as as Rob was was alluding to, is 
it's it's hard to say this is about sociology and not religion when the t- the touch point is definitely someone who I feel knows more about Christianity Catholicism based on sort of an upbringing and just sort of in but but does not necessarily believe in it now like this this is kind of like this reads like atheistic to me but with a knowledge of yeah of it's it's sort of like it's Christian centric without actually believing in it it's it's hard to not sort of like I guess as, as someone who's interested in religious history, it is a little strange when you 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 have these scenes like, and it, this comes a little bit later, where Constantine is at the the council. Rob, you may have to remind me of which council this was where they were discussing uh, the Arian heresy. Oh, Nicene. Nicene, thank you. I, I got um, this one in my yeah. History of Rome podcast. <laughs> were, were you listening to the to the Mike Duncan? Yeah, yeah. Somebody recommended it to me. It's great. Yeah, I was I I was I was trying to binge a bunch of it this week to sort of get me in a that frame of mind. Well, anyway, at 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 the nice at the the Council of Nicaea, as opposed to them doing this thing where they decide Arianism is a giant heresy, which is what happened in real history. Uh, however, it then it then it like persisted for a, a very long time afterwards. Um, Constantine just goes, "We're gonna have, we're gonna have normal Catholicism." And then whatever everybody else wants, and I'm going to enforce it at gun, like it will at you know, like spear point, gun point or whatever. And this is just going to be the way it is. And that's, then we're done. That's just kind of, that is as much as he wanted to deal with it. And it's interesting to me that that in, maybe not in the author's mind, but in the author's character's mind, that's the way to fix it. You still make, you still have Rome have one preferred religion, but still be okay with every other religion. So it's this modified religious freedom, which reads side of juvenile to me in that, like, it's weird to me that grown men would think this would work. Um, and it, it, it was hard for me, like, storyline-wise, you have to gloss over it if you want to, like, understand the rest of his book because he never talks about it again. But as as someone who who is interested in, the, in this sort of history and kind of, knows a little bit about how things like this would work. I was like, this is, this is a wild way to fix it. It is basically like a, I don't want to, it, it, in, it is a scene version of that footnote that you're talking about where he is like, it's not about this and I'm going to make it not about this in the story. Yeah. Right. No. And I, I so I think there's kind of two, there's kind of two versions of Pax Romana, right? One of them is, so in the, in the background of what you're describing there, like, so are the Vatican's mercenary army, they go back in time with this bishop, and then right off the bat, our leader, the the what is he, Colonel Brigadier um, Brigadier General Nicholas Chase, uh, he assassinates the actual Catholic lead of this group, right, the bishop, right. He assassinates him basically right off the bat, and is like, yeah, we're not we're not actually a religious party here. We're not actually doing this for Catholicism, right? And which is like very important, I think, to the storytelling because it's not actually. A Catholic religious takeover. What it is and what it is trying to be is shaping society, right? And it's a look at how, if you went back in time with the knowledge of what we know now and some of this advanced technology, how would you try to shape the perfect society? And I think, you know, one thing that rereading it, I was kind of like, this is a very funny group to be like, it's not five philosophers. It's not five, like, you know, historians. It's like five mercs. <laughs> it's like, this is a funny group to like go back in time and like be able to have these conversations that Hickman wants to have, but they do it right. That's the, that's the form of the book. And the two lenses are okay. At the end of the day, then 
you have an author trying to write how to shape the perfect society. And those are big meaty ideas. But like you're saying there, Chris, sometimes that can really fall apart when you, you know, so you have them go and say, all right, at the, at the council of Nicaea, or however you say that appropriately, um, Constantine, the emperor, we're going back and that's the era they go back to. He's the first Roman Christian emperor. Um, there's, there's a reason they do that. It's cause it's like 200, 300 years before the birth of Muhammad. Um, they go back to Constantine and they're like, all right, so our solution is we just need to take religion out of the equation as a method of control. We're going to do that where instead of Constantine enforcing strict, Roman Catholicism in his era, he's just going to, like you said, Chris, he's going to say, well, we're going to do that, but also we're going to have our cake and eat it too. And whatever, whatever goes, <laughs> whatever other stuff you're into is also acceptable. And then you can kind of say like, okay, I can, I can sit and say, does that actually work in shaping a society? And that's where criticism comes in. And that's where nitpicks where it's like, well, I don't know. Um, or you can just kind of be like, oh, okay, fine. Like, and how would that impact shaping a broader society? Right. And, and kind of these macro generational level scheming, which is probably what I like the most about Pax Romana, if I'm being honest, is purely the idea of a group of people coming back and they're like, we're not optimizing for today. We're not coming back with what we know to succeed now. We're coming back to succeed generations down the line. I really like that macro approach to trying to shape the future of, of the world. And whether the ideas actually work or not, I do quite enjoy Hickman and, and his characters here trying to, you know, shape society holistically, right? Like it is it is very much here. It's a thing that I like about X-Men, right? It's a thing that I like about what he's done with Moira and, and these potential future timelines where you have someone playing such a grand game, playing such a big picture game, um, as opposed to, you know, something like you mentioned, like A Less Darkness Falls which is really good. I, like the book is shockingly good. Um, or I thought, uh, but it's, um, you know, that that's all about just like, I just need to survive in the now. I need to bring what I know from contemporary times to Rome, survive in the now. That's not the game they're playing. Uh, so the shaping society piece, I think is, is very interesting. Uh, Rob, let's throw it to you, you know, in terms of how this group comes back in time that, that the Vatican sends back and then kind of how they aim to shape society. Uh, what are the things that work the best for you? What are the things that that maybe fall apart the most. So I'm going to, I'm going to give a generous read that I think is wrong first. Uh, the, the, the generous read is that this is a really interesting, like, well, I mean, first of all, the setup, like you said, that, that it's, it's about people trying to make a history for thousands of years in the future. Fascinating. Excellent. That is a wonderful story to tell. And if this had been, again, a 75 issue comic, I think that would have been a fascinating story to tell. Or if this had been an RPG source book, this would be a great space to, to like explore in stories. In four issues, it struggles. Um, but the, gen the generous reading of, of their approach to coming back in time, to changing things, um, this kind of like setting up a Hegelian system of we're going to have this force and then uh, we're going to have an oppositional force that we're also going to be controlling until we can synthesize them over and over again until we get a perfect society. That's a fascinating idea. I think that the, the generous read of it overall is that it's all functioning to kind of critique this idea of uh, the great man of history, right? And that if, if this is a very intentionally, carefully constructed work about great men of history, I think it's an interesting critique that um that fits with his marvel work with like mr fantastic or uh moira very well where 
you have this general who is the guy who has this big vision and he can impose his will on the world and he's going to find the right guy to shoot and that's going to succeed but he he dies right he can't do it and as a, as a result we have this very weird end result world we haven't talked much about the frame narrative yet but the, the frame narrative is what looks to be in a far future the gene pope explaining the secret history of the world to the child emperor of the world and if you look at all of this as very care if you assume it's very carefully constructed i think that the fact that the end result is not the synthesis they were hoping for is not the kind of utopia but is more fascism is the most extreme bad result that this guy was hoping to avoid then i think all of the weird stuff happening in the setup all of the failures to explore the setting i think all of that is contributing to this idea that this idea is bad that it would be bad to explore these things that people like this always fail the thing is the thing is i don't know if that's intentional because so much of those flash forwards are to like be about the wonder of the world and th this is a, a couple of major spoilers so skip ahead um a minute if you want to avoid major spoilers for the final issue but two details are that number one the gene pope is the general that they bring back that great man and he's still in charge of things in a sense and number two that uh, they get to uh, a high-tech, far-flung future by like, what is it? It was like a, the 1400s. The 1300s earlier? 1400s. Like the, the whole thing is it, yeah. end, it ends with them colonizing Mars in 1421 or something. And that final note is delivered with a sense of wonder and awe. It's not like the final note is how haunting that all of this led to infinite fascism throughout the future and all the technology to preserve this evil state the final note is wouldn't it be cool if there weren't any dark ages and we could have gotten to mars and the renaissance um which is uh yeah i think um it sets up all these interesting ideas about how you would affect the future how you would prepare to shape society and then just kind of fails it just doesn't explore the good ideas it has with any kind of nuance and winds up just going wouldn't it be cool which there are, there are good stories that just end with, wouldn't it be cool? That's a fine kind of story. But I think this wanted to be something more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, so like that is literally true in the sense that Hickman talked about wanting to come back to this. Um, there's a lot of meat left on the bone in the Pax Romana verse to put it mildly, right? Like, like you're saying, I mean, like these four issues, one collected edition, they play as an introduction story. I mean, this is an origin story of building this world, but it is like we now have this alternate history that is completely unexplored with the exception of, like you said, these glimpses. Um, and Hickman writes at the end of issue one, like this is by design. Uh, he initially considered starting the series with the band arriving in ancient Rome, you know, kind of in a lot of ways like Turtle Dove does in Guns of the South, where it's just like, hey, we send our, our weapons back to the Confederacy. How does the war play out? Right. But he writes that his intent like wasn't for a four issue mini and Don. I think this quote um, there are tons of stories I want to tell in the Pax Romana universe, so I used a setup like Mike Mignola's brilliant Hellboy, where I can build the world in a series of sporadic installments. And then he he says this later in an interview 
with uh with multiversity like a year later or like two years later with um with david harper actually the same idea like yeah i want to come back to it that never happens right we have not had a return to the pax romana verse um unless it gets secretly it's a part of a uh, three worlds three moons i don't anticipate we will see one anytime soon um so it, it is kind of this untapped space where all of this setup and all this cool world building, I think like you're saying, Rob, if this was, yeah, this massive run, there'd be a lot more potentially generosity towards it in actually playing with and actually fulfilling all these deals um, or all these ideas. And, and as it stands, I think it's maybe the best that can be said of it is when he kind of yada yada is when he kind of fast tracks through, well, here's the timeline, right? Here's the the graph to show you everything that played out. Um, here's the quick glimpses of we have a million Roman citizens on Mars, we colonize or on uh, the moon, we have, a, you know, we colonize Mars, etc. Um, all of that just kind of gives us a quick hit of what happened. And it, Hickman's very good, I think, early, and this has continued throughout his career, at playing both sides of an equation where he kind of has uh, Manon, this character, by the end of it, kind of saying like, well, if you didn't like my ideas for shaping society, guess what? That never works. And that's the point, right? And there's a quote here. Don't you understand? We cannot control the world any more than Constantine or Crispus. Only a fool would believe that individuals can change the world, uh, which is a really good quote and a really good take on like, can the individual shift cultural tides? Uh, you know, when in history has that actually been true? You know, Alexander the Great, Jesus, Muhammad, right? These are historical figures that actually do that. But generally, it's not true. Chris, do you think... I want I want to go to kind of the formalism and the the style of the work, I think, next. But do you think like as four issues, this fails and does it fail because there isn't more or or do you think it's it's the, the potential was there for this to be tight as is or something like that? Like, does it does it need more explanation for it to actually work? I think with the with the end being a, a multiple page timeline. There is definitely like a well, I would have loved to have seen this, and that that's what I that's what I kind of get. Yeah. But in some ways, I feel like you can read it by itself. Hickman is often kind of given an auteur status, right? Like that is a, I, I'd say that's that's true of a lot of his stuff. You know, he's 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 got this. He he's kind of a visionary in comics. He has this very, we he has a lot of tropes that he likes to work with. We tend to to see his works in a particular way. He has motifs that we are that we know about. There's a lot associated with him. Uh, in, in in ways that kind of make him what a lot of people consider sort of a singular figure. I feel like even before he was considered an auteur, he has this comic that basically says there's no such thing as an auteur in terms of yeah. there is even there's the character of Nicholas who is who tries to be sort of the 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 dictator of this entire plan. But as we know, people it's it's really it's really multiple people's ideas that tend to shape things. And this guy kind of can't let it go in terms of the fiction. Like his Nicholas Chase's whole deal is he's like my way or the highway. And that's, as you were saying, like it's, it's wild that they sent these mili these like almost like philosopher warriors back to the past, but like nobody of, of who has like any sort of sociological knowledge other than what they, they feel like they have. I, I, I kind of find it wild that the, the, the whole plot is this guy feels like he knows best. His subordinates disagree with him and you like and and they say like this is the way it was it was always going to be so in in a way i feel like it has a lot to say about his sort of great one great man theory and it's funny that he gets it out of the way really early in his in in his in his works that he's like this is the, this is impossible and yet 
it, it is still something he goes he kind of goes through later i feel i feel like fantastic four is very much a look at like this is like a great man sort of thing he says something different about it but i love that his second work is, is literally there's no such thing as one great man and so in that way i feel like it is a success but in terms of creating a a enriched wonderful narrative i almost wonder if if that kind of took a back seat or as you know like it's it, i did not know he was planning on going back to this at some point obviously it's probably never going to happen but I, it, it's another one of his like he sets up a cool world and he's really good at that and i wish i would just wish we could play in it a little bit more you know it actually it really makes me so he mentions the Manuela verse in Hellboy as kind of the the framing, which I think a lot of creators want to emulate, right? It's a super cool universe that Mike Manuela created. I literally just yesterday I had the chance to talk to Warwick Johnson Cadwell, uh, the amazing artist, illustrator who works now with Mike Manuela and created this book, Mr. Higgins Comes Home. It's not literally Manuela verse stuff, but it's that same gothic feel of these vampires in the, like the Victorian era. And now Warwick Johnson Cadwell has taken the reins, right? On these characters that he's co created or created with Manuela. I would love to see Hickman licensing out something like find creators you love, which is what he's doing now through all the Substack stuff and just be like, okay, take the, take the packs from Oniverse, right? There's so much meat on, like that would be pretty interesting and pretty exciting to see someone actually get to explore those possibilities. Um, Cause I, I do think as a standalone thing, it's, I think it's more exciting as potential than it is as an actual finished product. Um, which if it sounds like I'm talking X-Men again, <laughs> you know, like that's that's not totally incorrect. Um, so, all right. So, I, and I think too, like, you know, you both mentioned now the the great men and this idea of can great men and, or you know, women or, or just individuals essentially shape history. Um, that's in everything Hickman does. Like it is in absolutely everything. I mean, S.H.I.E.L.D., the Illuminati and Avengers, East of West, we have a quiet council, right? Quiet council of Krakoa, the Manhattan projects, these secret individuals. Like this is absolutely a theme that he comes back to and back to and back to again. And it is really funny how kind of effectively Pax Romana actually does answer that question, <laughs> which is like, no, like that, that is hard. Um, although I guess if you look at it, like by the end of, by the end of the book, I guess there is maybe some debate as to, well, because General Chase does kind of get his consciousness, you know, he supreme intelligences himself with a gene pope, right? It's like, does he actually almost win in that regard? But then to your point, Rob, like, well, congrats, here's this haunting future of, of infinite fascism, uh, you know, with the Roman Empire. So it's like, it's not your perfect society, I guess. That, that part is clear. And I, I think it's important with the gene pope it were introduced right off the bat that he does not have the kind of power that a, that a Pope in the 1400s would have in normal history. He's immediately like ridiculed yeah, yeah. by like simple soldiers. And it, it, it is almost like he is being kept alive as like a receptacle of history. I, it is unclear through the narrative how much actual power he carries other than just sort of being being the bard being the 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 person who tells the story um yeah but it does it does seem like you know in the we get that timeline at the end that there were that there were gene popes that that did more but it, it almost seems like at this point he is kind of like he's like a relic who keeps being like dragged out as like a as like a monument of how they got here i mm -hmm. if, if you don't mind i want to complicate that a little bit though because sure this is a book about controlling history 
right? Literally controlling history, right? And so I think that to take a problem with the book is that if you accept its premise and you accept what it's going for on the literal level, then thematically, the Gene Pope is the guy, he does control history. He's the only one that has access to it until he shares it with, uh, what is it, the King of Africa and the Emperor of the World, who are the two um, power, uh, two other powers. And so I think it, it's this, I think you're right, that he is like this weird, broken man, doesn't have much power, but then also, on the terms of the book, he should have all the power. He's the guy telling the story of the world. He's the guy shaping the narrative. He's the guy with access to history. And so there's a problem there, and I don't know if it can be resolved. You know, I, I, I don't know if it's we can pull from it like, ah, well, here's what the book is saying with that contradiction. I don't know. I feel like a lot of ways, a lot of times, the way that story would play out potentially would be, and I keep, you know, I'm, I'm a Marvel guy, so I'm going to come back to this analogy, but it's like, and the supreme intelligence was pulling the strings, right? Because the supreme intelligence is constantly planning across generations, has the full history of the Kree. Like it's always, it's generally stories are revealed that like, okay, and that entity was pulling the strings. And we never have that moment with the Gene Pope. Um, he's kind of just there for story time with this four-year-old emperor, uh, you know, who is, who actually has the power of command and things like that. You know, the drop isn't the, the, information drop at the end isn't really anything about what the gene pope was doing with that information it's more about what the society looks like as large and frankly just the fact that it happens so much faster right that we get there by the 1400s instead of the future we saw initially which was in 2053 ad uh before we talk about the formalism and the approach of hickman in this comic book which i definitely i want to make sure we get to um i do want to talk just about like first off like i do just want to say like this is a really interesting read like i think the fact that you know we can come to it and be critical of it but there's like there's a lot of directions you could go we could talk about so many aspects of this the fact the types of conversations and reference points that we get to bring in um and talk about alternate histories and religion and philosophy um i again i, I do just want to compliment and say i like that that meat being there in this work um it is it that's a lot to bring into four issues and i think the criticism for me primarily comes from this is a very stuffed sandwich <laughs> it is it is very very full of of information and ideas and it doesn't necessarily get time to play with them all and i do just want to bring up one i think that one idea that not even an idea a plot point that works probably the least for me um the one that it, upon rereading it i was like this this felt like a big thing and, and didn't do anything uh are the mercs lost in the time stream so the uh in the beginning of this work the the vatican sends back the eternal army and they're like there's some margin of error here that you know some people could get lost right but it, but it should only be you know a few decades 100 years whatever right that sort of idea and that happens okay so most of the eternal army lands where they're supposed to that's who we follow throughout this but then there's a portion of the army led by a jamaican man is is, is the best i could recall the character um who uh they get lost and they show up later but then they show up later and like that seems like it should be a much bigger thing um, and maybe cause more problems, maybe have more of a conversation. And again, just because of the tightness and the restraints on we're doing four issues and we're done, it's really not touched effectively. I don't know. Were there any other elements like that for you guys where you were like this this piece of the pie felt like there was so much more to it and we just never explored it? I think other than Nicholas Chase, 
almost nobody gets character development. So you have these things like Menon and uh, Ulif, or Ulf, I believe his name was. They had like a romance, and it's literally one panel where she, and then where it's like implied that she just started it to sort of manipulate him to help her because they, they have to have like two people to open the nukes. And that like, it felt like very like rushed. You get things like the, the, the guy who's, uh, his name is Fabio, I believe, who marries Constantine's sister. And you get this like, oh, he definitely like falls in love with her, but you just kind of have to like take it, take it for granted. There's a, there's a lot of, and I know like this is this is sort of a cliche of show don't tell. There's so much telling. Everything is like a well I I loved her. I'm giving her the treatments because of this, but there's not like there's just not as you said it's an overstuffed sandwich. There's not a lot of room. I I kept it, even on this reread that I did this week. I I forgot that the mercenaries barely do anything because there's even something like the cardinal recruits those mercenaries very specifically and says you answer to me so not like as a, almost like an alternative to you don't answer to chase you answer to me specifically and i i felt like that was going to come into it a little bit like oh maybe like they are they they do some vengeance because of where their loyalties are are, are lying or they're, they're going to look for this cardinal they're going to be upset that the cardinal's going to die but they, they kind of don't there's just there's a thing later as, as you said where they end up like siding with the visigoths who eventually ended up with having several wars with Rome um, in, in real history and in this history. But it's, yeah, I even think they, they get like a big reveal, right? It's like a, we're going to march on Rome and you're like, oh, stuff is going to happen. And then they just kind of have a little chat and they're like, sorry, we don't have anything <laughs> yeah, for you. Right. And then they're like, okay, we do have some stuff for you. Also just blazing past it. So I, I think things like almost any of the characters' motivations, you have those Cardinals at the beginning and you have that that script page, and you're expected to remember all of them. I immediately, I'm like, I don't know who these people are. These initials mean nothing to me. Um, so a lot of things like that. It is definitely more like story first, characters second, maybe even ideas first, story second, characters third. And I, I feel like you're right in that, like this one. And as Rob said, this wanted to be something really big, or even wanted to be something that came back to maybe we could look at these characters maybe we could look at these specific conflicts but it's like boom 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 i've got i've got one specific thing that i don't didn't even remember from the first time i read it but rereading uh for this discussion leapt out at me they just offhandedly mention at one point that the jesuits sent their own time travel mission back in time oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. that was with like alternate orders against the pope's mission and i was like oh man that's the story I want to read about yeah. the, the time Jesuits versus uh, versus Nick versus General Nicholas um, and all the like injury. Uh, but oh, well, the, the whole ending, the whole ending is like that, where it's like, here's five pages of really cool ideas. And this is this is a total Hickman X-Men move where, when he's on the way out, where he's like, oh, by the way, like, here's um it, basically Inferno number three. OK, I don't want to say any more than that, but it's like, oh, here's like a million ideas that can be explored in the future but that's not going to happen. <laughs> it's very disappointing with Pax Romana because it's like, oh, what what cool ideas. And now that you, I think the big thing too is like, it's a, it's a testament to the work. Like it's a compliment to the setup that I've put in the time and I've I've done the reading now to the point where I, I do want those fulfilling things to happen. Um, that's a testament to a successful setup, but it is disappointing when it's like, and we're out and and that's it chris you were gonna say something oh i i mean just disagreeing with disagreeing with you all uh, i was i was gonna bring up inferno as well about like some and even like hawks sometimes he loves story bibling 
giving you an appetizer and then being like, nope, we're done. Like even like the entire setup of Life Six, the one where that takes place in the future, on where where the the very the, the tiniest little remnant of, of, of X Men is like fighting against the the human machines. We get all this like setup that ever, like the rest of the mutants are often like in Shi'ar space, and you're like, wow, like this is such a cool concept. Nope, we're done. But he like he loves that. He loves that. He does this. This is not the only time that he's done this, but literally just like setting up. A big thing you know we've got he does it in avengers when you get like them the rogue rogue planet storyline where it's like here's a thousand years yeah, in yeah. the future he, he loves this this is exactly what he loves is literally setting up like story bible giving you hints of the story bible and then being like but i'm telling i'm telling a micro story in in what could be of like a vast universe of stories and so it's he's joked before that like um, he can get away with doing the same thing over and over again because like Marvel fans only read X thing, like X-Men fans only read X-Men. So that's why he like got to do some like points of other stuff. And I, I you know, when you read all this stuff at once, you're like, boy, he's, he is not kidding. Cause like, he, the man is like, the man <laughs> yeah. got kind of a, kind of a thing. And I feel like this is, this is such an example of like the first time it happened in, 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 a, in a published work of his nightly news, not like this at all. It, but this is like where, where he starts to take his sci-fi bent is where he starts to be like, let's do a big world and like give you hints. Well, and even by the time, even by the time we get to a red mask from Mars, which is um, the fourth book in the, in the sequence, we're going to see, oh, okay, here's, here's some packs from on ideas. And here's some, here's some similar world building and, and stylistic tricks and these sorts of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. So let, let's talk about the use of the text conversations. Cause we mentioned it a few times. Um, there's a really good quote here. This is from, an essay that I found, uh, it's called um, Jonathan Hickman's Pax Romana and the End of Antiquity. It's on, I found it on academia.edu. I'll share the link um, because it's worth reading and I want to give you know the author credit there with the work. But here the quote is, one consequence of this format, this is in regards to the text conversations, is that ideas are evaluated on their own merits, independently of the character to whom they are attributed. The movements and choices of individuals would seem to matter less from this perspective and the characters regularly insist on a perspective of a larger scale. Chris, I think this this really ties into kind of what you're saying, which is there's a very minimal amount of characterization. Uh, there's a lot of interchange, interchangeable parts. And I think one of the bigger challenges with Hickman's works um, is characters can feel like mouthpieces for ideas and they can feel, you know, and I think the literal taking their visuals out, taking any artistic expression of their tone or emotion or anything like that, and literally just putting the text on the page and not even writing their full names, do using just little initials when we don't know them that well is, is the perfect example of this where it's like, this is just pure idea exchange. You know, this is just pure philosophical. How do we, how do we handle uh, religion in this society? How do we, okay, we're going to shape generations. Can we get rid of slavery? How about that? And then they ultimately decide, no, we can't do that yet. But, you know, and, the, and they have these conversations and, and it's not, not interesting, right? I think is the thing, like these types of ideas, these types of conversations um, for readers who are into this stuff are, they're interesting ideas to have. And they've, they've been interesting ideas throughout the course of philosophy, but they are very removed from character with some small exceptions, some small exceptions, like in the first text conversation between all the colonels, all the mercs who go back in time, uh, Colonel Fabio Rossi is drunk throughout it or getting increasingly drunk. And you see, you know, he has things like, why am I the only one drinking? And by the end of it, it's just indistinguishable. And again, indistinguishable. And then he's falling asleep. Like there's little jokes there where it's like, okay, 
I actually get a little characterization from that character. You get some stuff with Chase because he's the primary figure where like, it's like, well, clearly he's in control. Clearly he's not actually listening to anyone else, despite him saying, I expect you to hold me accountable the same way I would you. Like that's, you get that feel, right? But in general, in general, the characterization of these individuals is very, very secondary to um, to the ideas on display. They're trying to be held up on their own merits. Uh, Rob, how did you... I guess how do you how do you like this approach to having these big large conversations uh, in the comic? Do you think it works? I think the the weird thing is that I think that it it's it's bad for all the reasons that you outlined, and yet because Hickman has these limitations as an artist and I think as a scripter at this stage where he doesn't fully understand I don't want to say understand but he's not entirely comfortable yet with scripting for the comic form. I think having those kinds of conversations play out on screen, I guess you would, or on panel, uh, would would be a much worse comic because I don't think Hickman has the artistic chops at this point to um, draw interesting, evocative, emotional conversations. And even if it were another artist, I don't think at this point he's thinking in in, in terms where he could bring about an effective version of this. So I think like a lot of the stylistic and formal choices in this book, it's mostly to cover over weaknesses, but it's good that those weaknesses are covered over number one. And number two, it's getting at interesting experiments with the form that like, I'm happy he took. Like, I, I don't think it works very well in this book, but I'm glad today we have a whole line of comics and not just a, beyond the line now, we have something like Eternals, where you can just get these wacky, weird, non-pictorial or pseudo-pictorial pages. And that's primarily because Hickman decided to do these weird dialogues and things back in the day. Right? There, there's a straight line from one to the other. And so um, I, I think it's valuable that he did this, even though I don't think they work here very much at all. He was on a, um, on a live stream last night. And talked a little bit about this comic. Mm. This is as part of like his his oh, really? or whatever. And he basically admitted like like what Rob said. Like he's like, yeah, I just I I I just had to do it. I couldn't make it. I couldn't make it in a better way. <laughs> and like he he like fully admits like <laughs> like yes, it looks boring. It's it, it's it's funny. It, it it is interesting to compare it to like Black Monday Murders, which even does like some of like some of the exact same stuff, but it's like way better looking. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But it, it's funny to me that he just went back and was like, "Yeah, absolutely, no, was not good. Was uh, could have been better." That's funny. That's funny. I mean, I do think you know, the formalistically, visually, it's it's got a similar appeal to the nightly news, where it's like purely on an ambition level. I kind of love it. I kind of love that it's out there. I kind of love that it's pushing to be like make different approaches to storytelling more acceptable in comics. You know, and I, you know, I think to your point, Rob, like I don't know that I needed six pages of nine panel grids in its place i don't that that doesn't necessarily sound better you know so it's like and i think too like when you're engaging with big ideas like this there it in and you're also reading comics you know and all of the the internal baggage that i bring to that in terms of like is this literary am i high-minded for reading these i feel a little more high-minded reading pure text i will not pretend that does not have an impact um so like whether that's valid or not i don't know but i 
I can see that, uh, you know, I, I can see other readers coming out of this and being like, Hey, I just read some heavy philosophy as opposed to, I just read a comic. Um, there's, there's some appeal there. We do also, you know, form formally get, uh, the use of these historical timeline graphs. Um, I found them, they're very steeped in the history, right? Hickman's done his, his historical research. For me, this was not something, it didn't make a lick of sense until I started doing some more research on my own. Literal things just like, who is Constantine? When did he exist? Um, you know, the Council of, of Nicene and, and Arian philosophy and these sorts of things where it's like, he just drops them in there. There's no context. You either know the history or you don't. Um, and you kind of need to, to understand the, the importance and the effectiveness of these graphs. Um, this is something we've seen Hickman return to. Very notably in X-Men, obviously, with the lives of Moira and, and all sorts of things. I, I think the use of graphs and things like this, and especially historical charts, has become a lot more effective. Um, I think about something like um, X-Men number 19, which is the vault story, where like I would say like the four coolest pages in that issue are just timelines. <laughs> um, it's used very effectively. What do you both think of the way it's used here in Pax Romana? A, a cool trick that doesn't work or actually more effective than maybe I'm giving it credit for? I think I like it the best when they first travel back in time and you get the the split of what the actual timeline is written in Arabic numerals versus what is what is happening as a result of them moving back in time, which is written in Roman numerals. I think that that is a really cool way of showing that like things are going to change. And I it, it at that point, it is both like a foreshadowing technique and also just kind of a cool picture. As far as the later timeline, the the timeline itself is 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 pictorially fine, but it's more of that like oh look at these neat ideas that could have happened like we talked about earlier. But Rob, you go ahead. I I agree with Chris that there are a couple of cool details, but Dave, I, I'm I'm mostly with you that the timelines fall pretty flat for me, and I, I want to bring it back to what you were just talking about with um feeling like you're engaging with something literary or uh, a big deal, or I think. Maybe the fundamental weakness of Pax Romana is that things like the timelines, like the infographics, they could be designed to give us more access to those ideas, that philosophy, that history. You know, if if they were designed in such a way so that it would help explain to people who Constantine is, then we as readers would be able to more fully engage with the story about Constantine. And I, I think that a problem sometimes with these comics that uh or not just comics any work of art that like is trying to make the reader feel like they're reading something important is that sometimes they go the route of baffling the reader you know or they don't care like like you get the impression that oh i know this is smart or important because i don't understand all of it and i think that's that's the worst possible way to go about it i think that you want to make sure that if you are bringing in this complicated history, this complicated research, these big ideas, that you want everyone to be able to engage with it to whatever degree they wish. And all of this infographic stuff could be really helpful with that, but it, it just kind of um, it, it it just doesn't doesn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think now I kind of see because again, like I I like the ambition. I like anything that that looks different and is pushing the medium in a way that I'm less familiar with. I think one thing that creators are maybe a little more savvy about now um and maybe others were doing it at the time i'm just not giving them credit but like something like um the good asian which is coming out from image comics it's a book i really love um it's really steeped in uh the early 1900s and one thing Pornsec uh Pichet show does the writer of that comic is he includes um these historical uh essays basically at the end of every issue they provide tremendous context 
for the time period that we're dealing with. I, and I think um, something like uh, Bitterroot by by David F. Walker, Sanford Green, and um, Chuck Brown does the same thing. And it does it extremely effectively. And I think what it does is it does not make the assumption that this is history you are super familiar with. And I think Pax Romana makes that assumption, um, what, whatever the restraints may, restraints may be, that again, like we talk about this being too tight of a comic, like or too, too stuff. Like It's not like there's room in this book to be like, here's you know, a real detailed history of Constantine, you know, what I mean? like it has to, it has to weave that stuff in, it has to integrate it. So I kind of, you know, understand on that level. Um, but I do think now Bitterroot, Good Asian, these are comics that bring me into the fold as someone ignorant of a lot of that history. And I enjoy them a heck of a lot more because of that, you know, and with Pax Romana, certainly like there's work you can do on your own, right? Like there is, there's homework you can take away from this. You know, like we talked about the history of Rome podcast, um, philosophize this, the Hegel episodes, you know, these things that I mentioned where it's like, okay, I see, I see a little bit more of this now, but it's, it's almost required. I think for those charts to make sense, unless you are a student of Roman history, you know, um, it, it just isn't going to work. So, all right. So we, we've been going for a while now. I mean, I think, uh, you know, one thing I've talked about is I, I do like this more than the nightly news. I think it's a really positive step in the right direction. I do think these early works of Hickman's are very interesting. I mean, for me as a fan, I didn't start really knowing or, or reading anything of the authors because of when I came into comics until probably like Manhattan projects was probably like my first creator own work. So I do, I'll be curious as I get to those, whether that affinity and that esteem that I hold towards that East of West black money murders, if those things hold up as much. Um, but I do think those or these like Pax Romano lack something compared to that. That said, this book was picked up for a series by sci-fi um, pretty early, like 2009, 2010 era. Uh, like all Hickman career and stuff to date, as far as I'm aware, it never got made, got picked up, never show never happened. Would a Pax Romana TV series work? Would you like to see that? You know, we talked about there being a lot of meat on the bone um, for a comic series that probably won't happen. Would you actually want to see this thing get made on TV? Chris, let's start with you. I'm going I'm to be honest and say probably not. I feel like it's a little too steeped in mm -hmm. 2008 in that in, in 2022, it is, it is not what I'd want to see. But I'm also like, I am really sick of the Dark Ages narrative. And so like anything that would really push that anymore would probably just drive me crazy. And I know that's like, that's, that's almost a cop-out answer. Cause I'm, I'm almost barely talking about the work when I say, I don't want to see it, but uh, yeah, I just, I, I, I cannot, I feel like if it would have been made in 2010, it would have probably been like a real like sci-fi hit. Cause it, they weren't doing anything like that at the time. And people probably would have been like, Whoa, this is like yeah. Yeah. a cool idea. And then, you know, that was like before you had like the, t the television version of like man in the high castle. Um, which I feel like was was probably a lot of people who are not like into alternate history literature. That was probably like one of their big touchstone points with like, oh, an alternate history sort of setup. So I think I think at the time it yeah. probably could have been really interesting, uh, you know, depending on who who made it, um, how characters got changed, um, sort of the attitude behind it. Like, you, you know, you, you could see this this possibility of it being like like uncomfortably anti-islam and stuff and it, again like the because of the time period it was at right but like nowadays it's uh, I, I i i it's not something i'd, I'd necessarily want to see Would i want to see some of his newer ideas as tv series like yeah probably like i i like i would watch a black monday murder show no problem at all but i, I feel like pax romana is sort of dated i feel like he would think it's dated i think um i i, I just don't i don't feel like the i what I would like what would come out of it today. I'll, I'll say I'll say this. Um, I agree with Chris almost entirely, 
And if sci-fi had attempted like to make this their next Battlestar Galactica, then it would have failed. It would have failed to even engage with the ideas in the comic as well as the comic does, which as we've established, isn't very good. But I want to posit that we don't get a Battlestar Galactica sci-fi type show out of this. What if we got like an SG-1 type show out of this where it's not smart at all? It's just low budget, episodic, there's guys with guns running around ancient Rome and doing things. And occasionally <laughs> yeah. Jesuits pop in from the future and they're like the evil <laughs> bad guys that show up. If we got that yeah. version of this, that is just very silly and vi- again, extremely low budget. We, we're talking like they bought used outfits from Xena to outfit all the Romans and didn't change yeah, it. Yeah, real, real right. I think there. that would be a classic. I think we would love it till this day. Yeah, that's funny. I, you know, that actually reminds me something that we didn't really talk about, but it's like, so like the premise of Guns of the South is basically like these white supremacists from South Africa go back to the American Civil War and they give the Confederates literally AK-47s. It is, <laughs> it is in the name. It is incredibly gun focused. It is incredibly focused on the technology that they bring from the future to the past. It is uncomfortably focused on that, I would even say. Okay, but in Pax Romana, this stuff happens, but it's like it almost never comes up. Like it's just kind of taken for granted that, well, we have the tech and we have this knowledge of the future. Therefore, we can shape every like the the amounts of like, like I think probably in like the first issue, maybe the second, there's like battles you know, that happened, <laughs> but like, it's a very, it's a non-action comic. Um, it is, you know, for a comic that is kind of about like the wars required or the wars to prevent from happening, it does not deal with that stuff at all. So Rob, the, the show you're describing, it's funny because it, it obviously like that would be goofy, but also just like, it doesn't really touch that stuff at all. Like the actual Romans with machine guns, kind of, um, you know, anachronistic nature that is present here. This book is so I guess self-serious in a lot of ways where it's just like, I'm here to have a conversation. I'm here to talk about shaping society. I'm not here to show you gladiator with a machine gun, you know, like it's, it's just not, which is, uh, I think on TV actually probably would have been, you know, if you're selling this to executives, they're like, what do we get to do? We get to do Russell Crowe with, with weaponry. Cool. Let's do that. Yeah. There would have absolutely been a scene of like, you know, a, a tank, like just like absolutely annihilating, like a Roman formation there, you know, it, everything would yeah. take place in like, in like a field or the woods somewhere just for the low budgetness of it. You know, how, I was just thinking about your, your SG one thing where they go to a planet and it's, it's always just like the woods, right? Like it's always just kind of like <laughs> yeah. some place where they could film in Vancouver. That's outside. I, 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 now that you're talking about this, I'm loving this. I'm loving this idea of like a tank just sitting there. Cause they can't move the tank. So we just get a shot of it, like firing a shell and then people like, a Roman general says nothing can beat the Testudo formation, and then it cuts to the tank and it just explodes them. Yeah, yeah. With the like the, exactly. the broom helmets exactly. that were like debatably like probably not as as ubiquitous as they seem. There'd be tons of them. And I, I think as far as the comic and action goes, on the one hand, Hickman would not be able to draw battle scenes. So again, I think it's uh, uh it comes down to his limitations as an artist. On the other hand, like. It's a much more interesting book for Hickman being like, all right, I can't draw battle scenes. How am I going to evolve this story 
without relying on that. And so it ends up being effectively like a social drama of who's going to influence who. And I think, uh, again, that fact that like his limitations force him to develop in a certain way, we can look at it as like the story does not give you what you want when you see the image of soldiers being sent back in time. On the other hand, it forces Hickman to develop as a writer in these ways that would later become very interesting. And I think that's a big part of why, you know, there's a reason I chose Jonathan Hickman as the first creator to do a series like this with. And it's a big part of the reason I find his works so interesting in the comics landscape is I, I can find other comics that have action. You know, I can find other comics that might play with these ideas that we're talking about. I could even go watch um, some some Justice League with animated with with Vandal Savage in, in a, an alternate World War three or whatever. Right. Like there are options right, for these types of visuals, um, what Hickman does, and he does well, is he subverts those expectations and says, no, we're actually going to have, you know, we're going to, we're going to play out a social experiment and we're going to play it out, you know, with this premise. And, and that is often very interesting to engage with, or at least I find that. Uh, so let's, let's kind of finish it here. You know, so this is a, a creator who clearly has evolved, right? We're still very early days. I think, you know, one thing to, that we almost take for granted. And, and I think even on the nightly news did too, is like, these are his first two books ever. Like these are, these are the guy's first two graphic novels of all time when you, or of his career. Like when you take that into consideration, I do think it's like pretty darn impressive that like, this is the stuff he was putting out as his first two books essentially, but he has vault, right? He, he has uh, taken, he's had a lot of reps since then writing comics. How do you think his explorations into society building specifically, have progressed, um, especially with something, you know, like an X-Men, like a Krakoa era, which is about building a new nation. Um, do we think the ideas have evolved substantially or was it maybe not explored enough um, in the likes of X-Men compared to what we see here in 2007, 2008 with Pax Romana? Uh, Rob, let's start with you. I think uh, the, the most frustrating thing to me about contemporary Hickman is that I think Black Monday Murders is like probably going to be his magnum opus. And I think from what we saw of that series, it is of the Hickman I've read, which I haven't read uh, East of West or Manhattan. I haven't read the two gigantic ones, but I think of the Hickman I've read, which is everything else, Black Monday Murders was building out the best possible version of this kind of social exploration. And, and it's for... Uh, obviously important reasons, it's on long-term pause. Um, but I, I think the limitations of, I think I think there's value in the, in the superhero genre of making everything big and bright and bold and allowing him to explore these kinds of things through um, the Council of Reeds, through the Avengers machine, through Krakoa. But I think there are so many limitations of that genre, just as like corporate-owned IP, you know, and of the needs to sell a line that uh, they have interesting, um, interesting bites of ideas, but it really was black mm -hmm. Monday murders where you see the full expression of this exploration begin to evolve. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, what do you think? So it's interesting to me in that I tend to mostly like vibe with Hickman in his superhero stuff. And it's, I almost wonder if it's because, so I, I, I did feel like a lot of the, a lot of the, the building in Pax Romana was, was, was sort of 
was sort of preliminary was sort of like not fulfilled as much as it as much as it could have been you know he talks a little bit about things like we're going to use fascism and then communism and like as, as like progression stages um to this what he considers like this perfect democracy yeah right um i i feel like rob is correct in that in that black monday murders is finally like let's really like dig into the meat of 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 how capital affects like actual world through like a little bit of of supernatural subversion i think it's it's interesting to me that how in superhero books things like x-men he kind of takes these big ideas but makes big ideas out of silly comic book ideas um whereas he he his big idea for for x-men he, he he apparently at one point wrote a manifesto for x-men right that was like he the, he wrote like a one page well i don't know how many pages it was he wrote like a document like as he was writing like secret warriors or something where because because he's he always he he said like he's always been a giant x-men fan where he was just like this is structurally why x-men comics keep doing the same thing over and over again and this is what i want to change and i like that he that he has he has taken what i think are pretty like small ideas masquerading almost as big ideas in in pax romana or even like big ideas that are not deep um and kind of taking them and applying them with a with a with a more like storytelling superhero lens of you know it's boring that all these characters keep dying we're not going to let them die anymore it's it's boring that they we get these cycles of them being oppressed by the u.s government and suddenly them beating that and being on top for a while and they get oppressed by the u.s government again and over and over again so we're going to remove them they are no longer in the united states there's not a government to oppress them i think i think his ability to take big ideas and apply them in ways that sort of break up mon- like a monotony of superhero comics is is it's one of his big strong points so i i, I consider his his evolution of from i'm the guy who talks about big real world ideas in in ways that you know like we said make you feel smart for for reading a comic and i'm going to take them and and maybe make these superhero comics feel a little bit more smart where at the same time he's finally kind of hit the stride with like a let us let us dig into to what is the actual most demonic thing uh that's part of the earth in black monday murders i like sort of that that fork of you know like you get nightly news media which which i feel like kind of boils down to corporate media bad as like a mission statement not a whole lot deeper than that and now it's going into like let us dig into further stuff whereas he's sort of um saying elevating superhero comics sounds like I'm, i'm being like a real snob but in some ways like elevating these 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 cycles of superhero comics and making them sort of break the mold a little bit i kind of like that those are the ways that he's going these days. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I truly, I don't think it's snobbish at all. Like, I, I think, you know, elevating superhero comics is something that I I look for and I value. And I, I, frankly, it's the thing I get most excited about um, because I've read too many of them. <laughs> and I've read so many Marvel comics to the point where it's like when you see an author come in and and at least have, again, it's, it's like 95% for me is ambition. It's like, what are you trying to do? Like, what do you want to do that is new? and different and what are the big ideas that you think can change up how these comics have played out over history i mean i do think like a big part of and i'm a, I'm a huge hickman marvel fan uh, like like absurdly big like I've, if you look at my best comics of all time it's <laughs> my fourth my fourth on the list is the hickman marvel verse okay from 2008 2016 like absurdly high absurdly high i love it and i think he does in the marvel universe there's a certain 
benefit of the doubt that I'm simply more willing to grant in the Marvel verse because I grant it to everything superhero related um, without thinking a lot of times. And I think one of the things that happens with a Pax Romana is because it is rooted in real world history and real world religion and ideas, then I, I actually am more skeptical of it and, and maybe judge it more harshly um, than, you know, with Krakoa. Like Krakoa is not actually a more developed society than what he is proposing here in a, in a very limited space in Pax Romana. Like, I actually don't know that we've had conversation as extensive or as thorough. I'm pretty confident we haven't um, about the Krakoan experiment across the course of, you know, two plus two and a half years of comics at this point. But I don't even think about that because Magneto's really cool, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. So <laughs> I'm definitely, I am definitely susceptible to that in the Marvel verse. Um, and I think maybe as, is a roundabout way of saying maybe I should give Pax Ramon a little more credit <laughs> because it's a hard thing to do. It is a really hard thing to do to set out to write a narrative that is compelling and, and as characters that we want to stay with. And that also describes how society can be built, you know, and it's, it's one of those things where we talk about reference points. I mean, the only thing that I've read in recent memory that does this and does it well is Asimov's foundation, which I've only read recently and now I'm totally obsessed with it, but that is a work that, actually says, yeah, we're going to build, we're going to, you know, and it, it's inspired by the same sorts of things. It's inspired by the Gibbons, by the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, um, looking at those macro level terms of, okay, this is actually a story about building across generations, building across eons. And it, it's fascinating. It's fascinating for me, like any sci-fi author that that attempts to do such a thing. I'm sure there are others, right? Obviously, Asimov has inspired countless individuals. That's just the one I've read recently. So, all right. What uh, are there any final things that we didn't talk about that both you want to make sure we we touch on here with Pax Romana? Well, I, I think just one real quick thing to add on to other works that are doing the same thing. Dune, I think, is important as like some I think might be the ur text for all Hickman things. Um, I forget someone out there I think is working on a Dune reading of Hickman, and Hickman keeps putting out Dune content on his Substack. Um, so that, that's important. Oh, yeah. you can you can tell he loves it. Yeah. Literally, like he had yeah. he had people like watching every every Dune that has been that has been like put on a screen. Like he did like <laughs> did like yeah. like the documentary of Jodorowsky's Dune. He did the Lynch Dune. I think he even did the Sci Fi Channel Dune. Like he, he you can tell the man loves it. And and he references God Emperor Dune specifically, which is the fourth book in the series, as a big influence on Pax Romana. And I, I, I have to admit here, I have taken a long pause after Dune Messiah. <laughs> I've, I've been catching my breath. <laughs> so I still need to progress through the series. But God Emperor Dune does a lot with like that that idea of shaping society, of Gene Pope type stuff, right? The collective histories all playing together in a single individual. It's just from what I've read, like you can tell. And again, yeah, like I think you're spot on. Like that is, if you, if you want to know, his sci-fi inspirations, you know, that's, that's the one. The other thing I, I just like to say as we wrap up is that I, I think the first three books that Hickman did are weird in that I don't see so much of a complete progression between them so much as three different attempts at getting started where you have someone who's writing realist social satire commentary. And then you have mm -hmm. sci-fi as um, big idea commentary and then you have transhuman, which I, I think is the worst thing he's ever written, which is like, I want to say the South Park approach to 
tackling big ideas. And it's, it's not, I, I think it's pretty bad. And I just think that even for how, even for the failings of these three things, it's interesting that he kept trying, he kept trying different approaches to grapple with ideas. And I'm very glad he went with long-term building on Pax Romana rather than uh, nightly news or transhuman, because I think it really is clear that this is what suits him best, that this is, uh, when you read these interesting failures or partial failures, you can most clearly see his successes in Pax Romana, uh, which makes it a very valuable thing to pick up. I think that it is interesting. You, you, it is almost necessary if you really want to get at the at, at the man himself to pick up his early stuff and see how much, even like it feels like his worldview has has changed as an as like a grown adult. It feels like in some ways, like, wow, he has really like shifted in the way that he, that he, it, it feels like he thinks about things. Um, Rob, the fact that you, that you pointed out all three and how they were all different things, it, it, it is infuriating me that I've never thought about it that way. Cause like, can you imagine if we had Jonathan Hickman who wrote like business cloak and dagger gross out comics and that was like all we got from him? Imagine wild, but I, I think that if you if you want to know what he's like now, even if you if, if you want to see how he's different, you should really read Nightly News and and, and uh, Transhuman. But if you want to figure out what like how he's evolved from rather how he's evolved in, in a way that's kind of uh, one direction. I think this is like almost like the Ur Hickman text in that, like, if you if you want to see what this guy is about, this is what he's about. Uh, all of his, all of the things that in, in, end up being in all of his later comics, like really stem from here. You've got like, like the, your great man theories. You've got your 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 big societies. You've got your like your your timelines, your infographics. Um, I think like absolutely, this is it, this is this is what you want to pick up if you want to know where everything that he is doing now comes from, and what like I feel like I'm just restating Rob at this point, but like. He he clearly has some things that he's rejected and some things he's latched on to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I think it's both well said. I mean, I do think like it, it, it is interesting. Like, so we're we're going to talk about transhuman next. That's what's coming up next in the book club. Um, <laughs> I can't say I'm excited, but I'm definitely I'm definitely interested to have a full on conversation about it because it is it is probably the weirdest book in his in his repertoire. Um, but it's also like when we're talking about these things in sequence, you know, it's it's easy to with the benefit of hindsight sort of assume that the, like there's a oh there was a clear line and like he he knew exactly what creator he wanted to be and like no clearly he did not because the first three works are yeah like you said like they're totally different genres and styles and and levels of of success i think pax romano like you said it does in so many ways become a blueprint for at least idealistically the type of stuff he might be doing because even as we progress the evolution into manhattan projects and east of west and that kind of image boom stuff when he was a writer there you know because he's he also enters a phase after we get out of trans really after this point, actually, like this is the last book that he illustrates himself. Um, so we now kind of, then he kind of hits a phase where it's like, well, I'm working with incredibly talented artists and, and they can communicate stories in ways that I couldn't. And he starts to learn how to do other things as well. Um, which, which really opens up in some ways, it really opens up sort of how popular <laughs> and how like just accessible his stuff can be, because there is a certain barrier to entry with nightly news and Pax Romana, which is basically like, if you are not here 
for the infographics, if you are not here for the static imagery and and the flow of, of splotchy red colors painted on the background, right? Like stylistically, if you're not here for all that, like this, this can be a very off-putting um, work. And he starts to move out of that as he evolves. But we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that on Hickmedia as we move through this month by month. If you want to see all the comics that we're going to be reading, you know, again, we're just doing a single creator-owned work every month. Uh, in So this is going to come out in February 2022. We're doing Transhuman in March, and then we're doing a Red Mask for Mars. Um, if you've been a little, uh, a little unsure of the early days so far, I promise you the evolution, as we kind of get to a Red Mask for Mars in April and then through... Manhattan Projects, East to West, into Black Monday Murders. There's a lot of good stuff coming, a lot of very interesting stuff coming. Um, so, you know, hop in and out of the ones you want to do, but I would definitely encourage readers to to explore with these um, as we as we move forward. So, Chris, Rob, uh, this was awesome. You you were both great. Thanks so much for for coming on and talking. Where uh, where should people find you? Where should people look for your work? Chris, let's, let's throw it to you. Oh, certainly. Uh, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Strictly Worse. Um, I also have a podcast that's on Twitter. It's uh, Chris is on Infinite Earths. This is the last year that we will be doing Chris's on Infinite Earths. We have a planned finale in the summer, uh, but we're still 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 doing stuff. And some of the best is yet to come. A lot of this, the the reason I wanted to sort of end it where it was, uh, this the podcast that I do with my wife Christina, was there were just like a few crossovers that I absolutely had to cover. Uh, some of my favorites that are that are going to be the end of this year. You can also check my writing out at, at Comics XF. What, what are some of your last ones that you're covering? Ooh, uh, we give a preview. I haven't even said on the podcast. Um, other than um, listener requests, which we are still kind of finishing out, we will be doing Infinity Gauntlet, which is one of my favorites, uh, as well as the lead up Thanos Quest, which I consider yeah. weirdly one of the best comics. Um, we're going to be doing DC. I love Thanos Quest. Thanos Quest yeah. rules. It's fantastic. We're going to be doing DC 1 million. And yeah. uh, we're going to we're going to finish the podcast on Final Crisis, which is my favorite comics crossover of all time. Ooh, exciting. OK, cool. Rob, where should people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Robert Secundus. And primarily my writing is on Comics XF. I haven't been writing as much recently, but you can look forward to some very weird deep dives into the Department of Truth soon. And uh, I will be releasing the final episode of my uh, bizarre, surreal fish review commentary audio video podcast thing that i've been doing at comics xf over the past year um so if you want to see me descend into madness and be chased by a lovecraftian entity while i review fish sandwiches uh that'll be posting soon rob uh, you're also going to be on uh, x lives x death coverage <laughs> that's right i i'm returning to uh writing regularly about comics i forgot about that on X Lives Next yeah, Death, starting bit. with issue number three or something. I don't remember, uh, but soon. We got a rotating team. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'll be curious to, to see where you're coming at there. I was, uh, I was, I was nonplussed with X Lives number one, whelmed. but I'm, I'm hopeful. Completely I'm hopeful for the whelmed. <laughs> I was <laughs> solidly whelmed. Absolutely. All right, cool. So thanks everybody for listening. Uh, this has been a blast. Again, I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at Comic Book Herald on Twitter and Instagram. And of course at comicbookherald.com. If you like the channel here, if you're watching on YouTube, please like, subscribe, and comment. That all helps me out a great deal. I will include links to these guys. I will include, uh, you know, all the notes here for references um, that we may have made or that I can remember, you know, for stuff to engage with the text further. And then, of course, what's coming next in the book club. So thanks for joining for Hickmania. We'll be back with number three in Transhuman next month. Get ready to get confused with me <laughs> in a month. Uh, we'll talk to you then. Thank you.